I want to ask Grant and Axel to give some insights into some of the lessons from Dr. Phil and how they've made a difference specifically at both of your companies. Grant, let's start with you. So how has the lessons, things that you've learned from what Dr. Phil has been working on and what he teaches, how has that made a significant impact at Royal Caribbean? Well, I do have to say, just a preface, there are many, many different tools that Dr. Phil and Consali have put together that we've learned throughout the sales master's program, but the mindsets are the foundation. And so that's where you start. And one of the biggest learning factors for us was I almost challenged it. So we took what Dr. Phil taught us and we thought that can't be at Royal Caribbean. You know, in his research, that comes down to less than 10% of salespeople are effective at their jobs. Mm. And I just, that just hit us. And I just thought that can't be true. Maybe that was 10 years ago when he did his global research to earn his doctorate of which he did. And so we hired an external entity to go out and interview 160 of Europe, Middle East and Africa travel agents, our B2B customers. And we were shocked to find out that less than 10% of salespeople are effective at their jobs. Exactly what he taught us in the master's program. So then we, that helped us to reorchestrate the framework. How would we build our digital sales academy? And everything that we did has to be tied to the positive mindsets so that we're not promoting people to behave in the negative frameworks that people don't want to be sold to. It was really, truly eye-opening. So everything that we built in our sales academy matches to that. And again, that's just one facet of the many tools he taught us. Very good. So Axel, you know, SAP, you're in a, have historically been in a very competitive space. You know, one of my, I know somebody who's a VP of sales for public sector, and he's in the space where you are, and he calls it the NFL of sales. You know, the solutions that you're in, the, what he's been known as the ERP world, et cetera. It's, you know, big choices, risky solutions for customers to make the decisions. So, you know, there's so much complexity in your particular marketplace, complex software. Talk a little bit about the transformation and how you've been able to enact that based on some of the lessons that you've learned. I fully agree with the analogy of sport in that case. I guess we are high-performing sales teams here. It's a very high-velocity type environment we need to work on and very complex type of solutions that we are selling. The issue we have, or we had, and we still have with salespeople, is that especially sales managers were the best salespeople. So when they need to adapt or to a new environment, they will rely on their experience. But as Phil said at the beginning of the call, the environment is changing so fast that your experience doesn't actually remain the best basis for the future. Especially at SAP, moving from on-premise sales to the cloud has been a massive shift. And to get our sales manager to embrace cloud was a very big transformation. Right? It requires much more than skills. You need to rethink the way you engage. And what we see, back to the values, if you don't follow the four mindset, you are starting losing trust. What's funny is that in the cloud market, trust is key. Trust and loyalty are the two things you're looking for. So when you try to establish trust, you cannot fake. You need to be authentic. Right? You need to be really customer-centric. Otherwise, it will be felt as being non-authentic. And that is more beyond the technique of sales that Phil was referring to. So what we see is that, I could work and collaborate with Consalia and with Phil and getting those four mindsets to start shifting the behaviors and the mindset of the sales managers in order to embrace the values of the new cloud engagement. And this is key to us because unless we bring 
this trust to the sales cycle, the loyalty and the adoption of our solutions will not be successful. But the second point, which for me is absolutely key, is innovation. I don't believe any company today can survive without innovation. Innovation is not a technical stuff. It's a mindset thing. Right? So there is a point where you need to go back to your mindset, understand how you can become innovative, and that's where tactful audacity and proactive creativity comes in. So on the one hand, you have trust, on the other one, you have innovation, and that's what the four mindsets are bringing to the table. So that's what we brought to the sales managers. And I love the way you talk about the changing, the shifting nature of how people are selling from being perhaps traditionally more product solution centric versus more customer centric. And this links a little bit into the doctorate that I did a number of years ago, which is based on how do customers want to be sold to. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the really quite staggering statistics that came out of part of my research was the percent of salespeople that sell in a way customers want. And uh, the percentage figure was really quite low. It was an of 80% of the many, many people I interviewed all over the world, less than 10% sold in the way they wanted. And the reasons that they gave were very much linked back to what you were just saying, that the ability of salespeople, I don't know if it's ability or whether it's the way they're driven by the organizations for whom they work, but it's the ability of salespeople to know their business, to understand their business and how they work. There was a wonderful quote from one of the people I interviewed. He said, I I want a salesperson, you know, obviously from a vendor, but I don't want him pointing at me. He said, I want him pointed back inside his own organization. You know, I want him to leverage my power and my weight as a buyer back into his company as a supplier in order that I can get a better deal, you know, across all points of engagement. And um, this idea of, again, driven by customer insight about how they select salespeople who can do that, who can bridge that gap between, you know, what they need and then leveraging, whether it's directly or indirectly through experience with other customers, like you were mentioning, is quite rare, according to many of the customers we've interviewed. So I love the fact that you've you know, the sales role is so important, isn't it? It's where the rubber hits the road. They're closest to where the customers are. Yet they have to fight so hard internally sometimes to get what they need for the customers. Yeah. And I would say this, when I think of sales, I also think of customer success, account management, like anyone client facing, because at the end of the day, they're advocating for the customer, but they're also, you know, keeping the business in mind. When I think about how we equip folks to be successful in navigating customer relationships and customer conversations, it is a blend of how do I provide you with the business acumen to make good decisions and recognize pivotal points of trust and credibility in the deal or in that relationship. And so a customer wants to hear from someone who is going to be thoughtful about solving their problem, is going to feel like part of their team, is truly an ally in, in fixing this. Because oftentimes, at least in technology, for buying technology, careers can be made, implement a great technology, and that buyer gets promoted. So really being aligned to them and, and supporting them in what they need in their organization is key. Yeah. But I think a lot of businesses think constantly throwing information at folks as if they aren't equipped to navigate the customer 
is what we do. And so when I think about, you know, the times that I had to be a great seller, I had one leader who was awesome in coaching me and really spent the time going, what I want is for you to sit in front of a conversation and understand the pivotal points that you can build a bridge, the pivotal points at which you can offer value. So everything else needs to almost be second nature. I need to know my product really well. I need to know their solution really well. Mm -hmm. It needs to become familiar to me so that when I see something, I can offer insight and I can continue that conversation. It's not giving me what insight I should offer. It's not telling me exactly how the solution is solved. It's being thoughtful with the customer in order to arrive at a solution that's best for them. And that's when, you know, you talk about price or how you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, But without that trust that I understand the problem, we will never move forward. Uh, And so I always think if we hire really smart people in customer facing roles, usually, and we need to empower them to be confident in their ability Mm -hmm. to partner. And when we see challenges, coach them. But it's not, you know, they need to be constantly in school because realistically, jobs are learned on the job for the most part. (laughs) Experience comes from, you know, moving with more customers. And when we think about that confidence that a customer wants, they usually want someone who's worked with lots of folks, right? They don't mm-hmm. want someone brand new. And so the fastest way to build credibility with the customer is to say, I've worked with a customer like you, or I've actually seen this industry before, or actually I know someone who had the same problem. And the only way they're going to get to that is doing it more, at, but also feeling confident in navigating that. So that's interesting. want support in getting their goals and their mm-hmm. needs met. And we have to bridge that delta between we are a profitable business, we want to do that, and what is that worth to you? Um, but not just, you know, here's what I have, please buy it. <laughs> we'll delve into things like mindset and stuff like that. But in that research, was there anything for you at that time that was um, unique? Or was it something you intuitively kind of knew, but it was just verified by some of your customers that you did some research with? I think it's it's a really good question because um, you can start off your research project with a hypothesis of what you think the answer is to a particular nutty problem that you're trying to solve and use your research to say whether you're right or wrong. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't the approach that I took. I didn't go in with a hypothesis. I went in simply with a question, which is abbreviated to how do customers want to be sold to, without a hypothesis, but of course with bias, because, you know, you've been, you've been taught, you've been through multitudes of different types of sales training programs over the years. And of course, the lens through which you look at the data is influenced by your experience and how you've been trained. And what I realized sort of halfway through the doctorate was how my bias was stopping me from seeing what customers are really saying. And I feel rather ashamed to share that with you because, you know, we're taught to question, we're taught to listen and all of that. And I thought I was a good listener and I thought I was a good questioner. But actually, I did this workshop with a professor from London Business School where I brought buyers and sellers together and we looked at the data that I'd accumulated over a two-year period of interviewing many, many, many buyers across the world, in fact. And we came up with this 
flip chart page summarizing what were the key learnings and um, the key learnings were we need to be good at questioning we need to be good at listening we need to be good at this and I thought there's absolutely nothing new here and I almost jacked it in and then I realized that I I uh, you know I had a lecturer at the university talking about research techniques and uh, this lady asked me Phil what are your values and I remember listening to the question and I spilled off a few like you know we often do is sort of integrity and family orientated and whatever um and I realized I'd never seriously considered my values and she was making a connection between values and bias. And once I started that journey, I then realized what my bias was. And I relooked at the data through a completely different lens. Wow. And interestingly, that lens took me into the area of values and the values that customers are looking for from salespeople. So not to do with competence or process or methodology, but values. And I borrowed some ideas from an academic called Howard Gardner. He's quite well known around the emotional intelligence kind of field. Um, linking values to mindsets. So if your values are strong enough and you live them, they become a mindset. And so this then drew me into defining the kind of, from the data that I got from the customers, well, what were they, what was the data telling me about the values and mindsets that they look for from salespeople? And I have to say that completely changed our entire approach to the way we have started to develop salespeople yeah. and uh, sales leaders as well. The premise is simple. If the values are, are right, the right behaviors will follow. So if I have a value that is based on curiosity, if it's a real lived value, what am I going to do? I'm going to question and I'm going to listen. Yeah? yeah. Yeah. So these values were, if you like, the operating system. And on top of the values that you have, you have apps that sit, you know, the application sits on an operating system. But the premise that that we had was, yeah, if we embed the right values, then the apps, the way people deploy their behaviors, competencies, learning is going to drive the right kind of behavior. And we had control groups going on with different clients where we took people through projects where we taught them what the values were and we got them to express them in the way they sold and compared them with those that didn't. And that proved the ROI of going down this particular route to us. And then, you know, the kind of the rest is history really since then. I mean, maybe you've shared many of them already in the storytelling that you've done, but what for you, for someone in your kind of role as a large deal, you know, business development director, what, what are the critical skills? What are the critical attributes do you think? you need to have to be successful in in the role that you're doing we've kind of touched on them i think i think it's that um being able to be genuinely interested in the client um mm. wanting to listen to what they're telling you and taking that information away and i think that one of the drivers for myself has always been you know authentic and hopefully always authentic but also always wanting to add, add value. And that requires 
you to genuinely invest yourself into the client that you are trying to secure from a business development perspective. So really trying to understand their world, listen to what they're telling you, and then being able to look at the business in which you're operating on and saying, can we add value? And then questioning what they've told you based on the knowledge that you have, um, your knowledge of your business, what's going on in the marketplace, so that you can really come back to them with something that truly adds value. And that, like I say, and, and be bold. It's very comfortable and very easy just to f- follow the line of saying, well, okay, yeah, you've, you've, they've asked for this. If I deliver them that, then they'll be happy um, because I've fulfilled the brief. I think where uh, I've been successful in the past has always been, okay, if what they've asked for absolutely makes sense, then fine. But be, be that critical friend, challenge them, and also challenge your internal stakeholders as well. Of to, to, hmm. yeah. The amount of times, I suppose the other thing I'd say is never take no for an answer. Um, I, I joke to my colleagues all the time of saying, my world is gray, it's not black and white, it's just different shades of gray. Um, and as a business, you know, we are in a very different place than we were three, four years ago. And I think because some down to myself and some down to other colleagues of constantly pushing. And when we get a no, it is trying to understand, are you saying no because it's hard or is it a little bit scary or um just don't want to do it you know mm. to me they aren't they aren't the um they aren't the they aren't good enough for reasons yeah sometimes a no means a no it could just be that you know you say well okay that clearly just cannot happen because of x y z and often i'll i'll say to my colleague explain to me why then and you can understand you can kind of weigh and go okay yeah i absolutely get that that means you know the no is a hard no it just it can't can't be done but sometimes you you can look at it and say, well, okay, well, if we did this, 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 would that generate a better outcome? What are the challenges associated to that? Um, and it could be, I don't know, a more senior stakeholder, so they need to get their approval. And then, okay, well, I can help facilitate that conversation. Yeah, we'll go together. We'll have that conversation and we'll see the challenges mm. up. And I think the business is... Yeah, luckily, we're um, the business and we're certainly within Willpack. And you know, Bun's always that desire to to innovate. So mm. I'd also say, yeah, challenge a no, be it from a client or from internal stakeholders. Be prepared to question and and to mm. push, because you never know what the outcome may be. It may yeah, it may be an absolute better outcome than you had. And I always have in my head. Um, I use this a lot, so it will resonate, I think, with some of my colleagues. I talk about Roger Bannister. Um, in 1954 oh, yeah. doing the four minute mile and you know the the thinking at the time by all experts were saying you know, a human cannot run a four minute mile it's biologically impossible and you know it can't be done it was only when he ran that four minute mile that it was possible and within a year later three people bearing in mind it was impossible up to the point that he had done it three people then ran a four minute mile a year year later so and the only thing that changed was it was now possible. Mm-hmm. And I think that's quite, I also think that's quite a powerful story. Um, yeah. Yeah. That, you know, you it should, drive. I don't know if I've necessarily answered your question necessarily, but. Well, no, I think you have. It's, no, it's I, my desire to push. Yeah. 
for the if you like you know the, the general public most people's interaction with them are um are not necessarily the same interactions as you would have at you know the the, the you know, big deal pursuits um it's, yeah it's a very different process it's a lot more complicated and as buyers are becoming increasingly more sophisticated um and it's yeah. interesting how the professionalization of buyers and the SIPs courses and, and um, so forth that they can go on. Yeah. Sometimes there isn't that counter um, training um, for salespeople. No, there isn't. Yeah, there are no, lots there of isn't. I mean, out there, but there isn't those real professional recognized bodies yeah. um, out there. Well, there are, but there's not that many. Yes. Yes. Well, I, I mean, that's that's, you know, clearly an area in which we've been sort of wanting to professionalize and um you know our journey into this large deal pursuit phase started with the um started with the doctorate research which in itself was fascinating but i'll you know maybe refer back to that later but actually the people that i worked with there was a team of there was a core team of about 12 people were so interested in the process of doing the academic research around improving professional practice in sales that they asked if we could create for them a bespoke master's program for their team you know that uh, and because they recognized i think just like you that there's no formal qualification in this area yeah. and this is where our journey into um the master's program started you know back in 2009 and it wasn't something that we did as a company at the time, but we said, why not? You know, we spoke to Middlesex University and we created our first master's uh, program and uh, they put six people through that program, uh, some of whom I hope will be part of our trilogy series as well. So, um, and that, that for me was really interesting because I, I didn't anticipate such an interest in what academic learning can do and you're quite right procurement have been doing this much longer than we have in sales you know yeah. the sips courses that you can do an mba in procurement actually yeah, and yeah, you, yeah. i think that's been around for 30 years or so you yeah. know and and um yet sales you know that sales the professionalization of sales in the context of large deal pursuits. Well, I actually think we run the only masters in it globally. No one else is doing it. So anyway, uh, we need more people out there to, to follow what we're doing really, you know, to get it established as <laughs> in the psyche. But, but it's interesting what you should say about this sort of gap. I was just thinking of, um, just thinking of a story that one of our students was sharing about, you know, he was a very successful account manager and then he got promoted into a sales management role and he was joining our master's program and, um, and on the master's program and he was doing a reasonable job actually as a manager with about seven direct reports. And it was in a field that he knew quite well and they did do well, but then he was promoted again mm -hmm. within nine months to being a sales director with three or four line managers then reporting to him with a team that had been high 
high performing maybe five years ago, but now was one of the worst performing teams with people who were also much older than him, more mm -hmm. experienced. And, and he sort of describes the journey that he went through trying to take this underperforming team of highly cynical salespeople who didn't see what this young whippersnapper could do <laughs> to help change things. And it was very interesting seeing him develop his management approach. He had to learn extremely quickly about this transition from being you know, a super salesman into a super manager yeah. uh, because he only had nine months to make it work or else he would have been fired like his predecessor was fired wow. <laughs> after seven months. But it, it's, it, it's so different, the role of management to, to the role of sales. And, you know, I could talk more about this particular story and what, and what this individual did, but um, it plays into all the things we talked about, about coaching, about curiosity, about psychological safety, about building a vision. It played into all of those kind of spaces. And it, it was an amazing journey he took. And he's now the managing director of one of the Salesforce companies in Europe. You know, he's done incredibly well with his career. But you know, I often think of him in those early days talking about his struggle with what leadership was and what it wasn't. It was a slightly different approach because he um, um, he realized these guys had a lot of experience. They They had a fixed mindset as opposed to a growth mindset, I think, you know, yeah. which was... We, we, and, and and so his challenge was how to take someone with a fixed mindset and make them switch to having a growth mindset. And he, he took the view, and there may be other ways of doing it, which is that he can't do that by being directive. He couldn't yeah. do it by by saying that this is this is what you need to do. And uh, and so what he did was that he 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 had a 30, 60, 90 day plan. And in the in the first thirty days of his plan, he it was all about getting a sense check of where people were with their with their personal mindsets, and using that the the output of that to then drive a vision. And he wanted to connect them back to what they did well when they were the top performing team. And he used a, a, a an approach called appreciative inquiry. I, I don't know if you've heard of that with um, Cooper Ryder, which is discover, dream, uh, design, develop. So discover 30 days ended up with dream. How do we get back to the things that we did all those? And he really got them to tap into what it was like. And as part of the dream, they want, they agreed that they wanted to get back to being the best performing team. And they all, almost all, I think 80% of them bought into it. And that, that they that journey actually enabled him then to get them at least into this growth mindset phase, um, which was a key part of his transformation strategy. So it wasn't directive; it was, you know, involving them in shaping what was what became a a a vision that was co-created okay. with the team members. Yeah, uh, it was very very powerful and. Um, they then moved into the design phase, which was the action plan. Okay, what are we going to do now to get to our dream goal? 
They wanted to be the team that everyone else in the company wanted to come and join. That's how they defined success. It wasn't hitting a quota. It wasn't a target. You know, targets were part of it, but it was doing something exciting. Yeah. Um, it was the pup, the why, you know, the, the Simon Sinek why came yeah. through very strongly. And, um, and it, and so they began to get noticed. They saw that other teams were beginning. Something's happening over here. You know, one of these guys, the old they're walking around with their heads held up sort of higher. But this was recognizing this was empowerment and potential, you know, coming back to those mindsets we spoke yeah. about earlier on. And um, yeah, by the end of, you know, the, the, the following year, because he took over in September, then the first last quarter of the year was a disaster for them and then by the end of the following year i think there were 30 percent over over quota and really back on stream and then of course he got promoted and someone else uh, sort of came in but it was a very interesting journey of creating the right culture to allow him then to coach and so with every deal that they were looking at they came back to the mindsets they looked at you know, to what ex with the account plan, the opportunity plan, they came back to the mindset to kind of evaluate, are we doing enough? Mm. You know, pushing the boundaries, you know, yeah. how can we do better? Um, yeah. But it, it's, it's recognizing, it's recognizing sometimes very small things, um small phrases small words that are used in a sales conversation can completely transform the outcome of the conversation and the manager who's in tune with the kind of conversations that are going on between salespeople and their their customers should be looking for those things that can transform a sales conversation and it could be around creativity or tactful audacity or just knowledge of the customer or whatever. It's it's difficult to be specific. But yeah. once you're aware of what the mindsets are, you can look at a phone call, a meeting. You can then start to evaluate, you know, were we authentic enough? You know, was our presentation just top and tailing a presentation we've done before with a new logo? You know, it's all of, you know, how can we, how can we, you know, break down the barriers. When we start the presentations, do we start with us or do we start with the customer? You know, down to client centricity. <laughs> so, I mean, you've obviously got a huge amount of experience in working with, you know, startups and with large corporates. And, you know, um, what have been some of your key learnings from the experiences that you've had? Some key learnings. One is very important. If the sales leader or the leadership team of your company does not believe in what you're doing, you're going to fail. Okay. It doesn't, it does not matter how much work you put, how many hours, how many nights you don't sleep. If there's not a belief in the function, yeah. you are going to fail. And it's not personal. It's not about your abilities. It is not right. about your intelligence. It is they're not going to believe in what you bring. So that's the first lesson. And if you feel or if you see that there's not a belief in enablement, get out of that company. Could, can I just uh, just stop you there before you move on yeah. to some of the other lessons? But Because I, it's interesting that you've had experience with startups. And mm -hmm. I don't know if these were venture capital or private equity-led startups. But um, 
my experience of startups is um, that a number of them have been quite reluctant, you know, to yeah. probably invest in sales enablement mm-hmm. because they, you know, they just want to, you know, recruit more salespeople. If we need to sell more, just recruit more salespeople. Oh my, oh my God, know, yes. It's that sort of, so when you talk about, um, you know, this needs to be brought in by the CEO, I just wonder whether you experienced that, 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 you know, the type of organization that you worked for, you know, startup versus more mature, perhaps, um, whether that had an influence on this CEO philosophy that you talked about just now. Uh, I think that, yes, this depends on how the CEO sees of what sales is going to do and how much the CEO kind of relies on their sales leadership because that's another thing the sales leader might be very into an enablement role and the ceo doesn't believe it then i would say okay then there's a disconnect there um i had ceos of companies that asked me these startups but what is enablement like we don't get it we don't get why this is important and i would tell them exactly what you said well you can solve this problem many different ways Right. You need to sell. You need to sell and you have a quota and goals to achieve. You can do different things. You increase the price. You ask people to sell more. You hire more people to sell the same amount, but you have it in more people or you make your people better. And the way to make your people better is by bringing enablement. So I want to ask you yourself, and I ask this to so many people, what is personal change? And when I ask that question to people, I get a, a heavy mix of confused faces, blank stares, or just uh, somebody trying to say, well, I'm really not sure. And that's really interesting because we need to understand what is personal change. And especially in sales, sales people and sales professionals are caught in between the organization itself and also the B2B and B2C customers that they support. So there's constant change that's happening to our salespeople and not just salespeople, but leadership and operations and everybody within the organization. So first, I'd like to talk about organizational change. And we need to talk a little bit about this so that we can draw out the differences and review this so that we can understand how do we help the individual. Now, organizational change is a methodology and practice of implementing and processing change within business and within organizations. And you've probably seen some of the models I'm going to share with you today that we learned about in the master's program. And um, it's probably something that you are very commonly uh, known about. You have a a cognitive awareness of what is organizational change. So let's talk about that for just a moment before we go into what is personal change. Now, in the sales master's program, one of my favorite uh, sections is module four. And that's where I really caught on to this. Um, organizational change is where we learn about in leading sales transformation, you have to understand the concepts behind change and change management. And so we were taught about these different models. And you see here, Kurt Lewin's freeze model, unfreeze, change, and refreeze. You see the McKinsey 7S model, which is down below on the left-hand side. Shared values is at the center, but you have in the outer bands, structure, systems, style, staff, skills, and strategy. Now, then again, these are the organizational change models. On the right, you see Cotter's eight steps model. And in the center, he's focusing on, well, what are we doing? We're leading change. And the outer bands on the outer elements are the elements that he prescribes that leaders and management people should go through 
in order to execute change within the organization. And so we learned about this in the master's program, and we kept going with our learnings to see what was the viewpoint on all types of organizational change. Now, this was one that probably is common or more familiar to you. Um, this is referenced back to Dr. Elizabeth Kupler-Ross, the top graph, and it's called the SARA curve, S-A-R-A, which stands for shock, anger, resistance, and acceptance. Now, this is very interesting because there is no true unknown owner or owner of who created this. And if you want to know my story of how I interviewed Ken Ross, which is the son of Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, on did she create this, well, I invite you to read my book because I had an in-depth interview with him about this model. But this version, as you see here, Reactions to Feedback, the SARA model, is accredited to uh, Rogel. He created this version in use of 360 business feedback sessions for employees. Another popular one is called the ADCAR, and this is probably more dominant around the world. And this is Prosky's uh, Awareness, Desire, Knowledge, Ability, and Reinforcement. And this is where I get my most uh, critical feedback because there are so many certified and professional Prosky uh, trainers and coaches that are out there. And when I talk about scared so what in personal change, it's commonly pointed right back to the D in desire. And they say, well, this is where personal change is described. And what happens though, you can break the model very easily if you just ask this simple question, what happens when the individual rejects change? You can't go forward with the model. And typically in business leadership, we do not ask those types of questions to find out if the individual accepts a change, uh, if they're on board with a change, or if they agree with a change. Can I talk to you a bit about culture? Because yeah. I think culture is, you know, there are these wonderful quotes that culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you must see culture quite closely because I guess yeah. HR is something that's really important, you know, yeah, probably around um, the HR role. So could you tell me what your thoughts are around culture? I'm actually personally always careful to use the word culture in an HR strategy because, okay. you know, culture is something that evolves. You cannot just design culture and implement culture. You know, that is something that that evolves throughout the years and also is part of, of a company's DNA. And then, of course, you have not only the company culture, but then you also have the different country cultures or the divisional yeah. cultures or the functional cultures, you know, of the different sub teams depending on the leader you have. But of course, you see a difference like the company I am in today has a very strong people culture, very focused on people. Um, and this goes back to the roots that, you know, it was founded 75 years ago by the grandfather of our current CEO. So there's a long tradition of, you know, we're building something good for the world and we're building something yeah. good for people. And we have managed to keep that DNA, which I really appreciate because it's not that the focus on people is like, okay, we have to have it in a slide and we have to have it in our values and okay, we move on. It is genuinely lived because there's also such a strong legacy in that mm -hmm. company and because of this family-owned dimension. But at the same time, in other companies, you know, you also see a strong company culture that is created by the way you work, by the leadership, by the products, by the markets you're in. Is it fast moving? Is it slow moving? 
How do you sell to your customers? So in that sense, you do see a big difference. Can you change culture overnight? No, because mm -hmm. this is, again, culture is linked to people. And yeah. if you change too many people too radically, you lose a lot of intellectual capital, you lose experience, you lose knowledge. So you have to be mindful how you drive those type of changes. But of course, over time, when you bring in a different caliber of people that are in line with the strategy, you start shifting from a cultural point of view. So it's so, a big, big impact. Yeah. So what would you, I mean, do you have a point of view about if you were to be asked the question, what's more important, having an organization with the right culture, but the wrong strategy or the right strategy, but the wrong culture? Well, I wouldn't pick either one of them because you need both. <laughs> you need both. Okay. I thought I'd put you on the spot with that question, but it's an interesting one, isn't it? It is an interesting one because I have seen companies with the right culture, but with the wrong strategy, you know, yeah. you will not get anywhere. Your business results will not be there. And then eventually it started impacting your culture, because you maybe have to lay off people, you have to downsize, yeah. you have to cut budgets. There is a travel freeze, a hiring freeze, a expenditure freeze, which doesn't really positively impact the culture of, you know, how do we work and how do we think, do things together? Well, one of the topics that we also wanted to cover, Hanker, is how easy has it been being a female going through the sales world because there are not many people who get up to the level that you're at. So has it ever bothered you or have there been any glass ceilings that you had to break through in order to get to where you're at? I know that SAP is a great believer in diversity. And so, you know, it's something that they encourage, I'm sure. But still, the stats in the sales world that mm -hmm. it, it's mainly male orientated, I think. <laughs> First of all, I never experienced challenges here. And probably I was lucky to meet really people who gave me a trust, who gave me yeah. a, a chance and who gave me the opportunity. And so really, as I told you, as a part of this M&A team, you know, I was 28, you know, and, okay. and uh, really so yeah. it's something that I believe this is something that now making for me the importance factor that for the young generation, it's so important to give them a chance with okay. no limitation. Okay. Yeah. Uh, because then you can really discover talents. Yeah. But if the young generation, it's not getting those opportunities, then we should lose those talents because those yeah. people probably even will resignate on their own, let's say, yeah. possibilities. So, what I believe, you know, being a female in sales, I'm always struggling that a female afraid to go to sales because yeah. it's a very stressful job. Yeah. Uh, and probably this is the reason why they afraid. On the other side, I see a lot of our strengthness, something that it's helping a lot with the sales and with yeah. all the things, but also we touch uh, during the master because really a problem solving, you know, how we should really generate the ideas, the empathy, the communication, you know, all those things, I believe we are really ready and capable 
to become leaders. But yeah. what probably is something that it's locking or not locking, it's really, you know, influencing very much that we still don't see so many females is the role models. Because this is something that usually it's not about that you have a quota or that you have a special programs and so on. I always believe that the main trigger and main change it's coming when you are having enough role models and it's not only about one or two and always I'm saying you know don't compare yourself with me because I'm already on some level that of course you need to go step by step and if you will be now dreaming to become MD or to become a sales director probably you will see this dream as something that it's very very far and I think that what we need to do and and one of also my activities what I'm doing because I'm also taking a lot of uh, keynote speeches and panel discussions is encouraging the young generation to let's say dreaming about my next job but not the final one because if I will be just dreaming about okay my next career is something my next job should be this and next next job and so on or if I'm dreaming to be become MD of course your readiness and your mm, ability to move will be different yeah. because this MD should be too long. And, you know, yeah, yeah. something that we also talk about, that if you see that you need to really invest for a very long time and you don't see the results and you are not feeling the satisfaction, then probably you can lose the motivation and you can really use the energy to yeah. invest to that more. So this is what I believe it's very important for having more females in leadership and especially in sales. So I think it's great to bring students and just give them the chance, you know, don't afraid mm. that they will make a mistake. This is something that I'm seeing biggest difference between I'm not really experienced in other European cultures. So I will be talking only about Czech. Sure. But we yeah. are still so much afraid to make mistakes. You know, comparing to U.S., for example. Philip, if I may, because this week I found one very interesting concept or theory. Let's put it this way. And it's about the serendipity, if you know it. Serendipity, yeah. Yeah. Okay. And it was first time I really had a chance to a little bit explore more details about this model. And I have to say that it's answering a lot of let's say questions why somebody is more successful than the other because you know if and this is something what I like it on on this model very much because it's very simple by your DNA by your behavior by your setup that you cannot influence but you as a person are capable to see the opportunities where the others are not seeing these opportunities and you are ready to take those opportunities And I think that this is also some combination because if you are, let's say, more open for even surprises and really taking those opportunities positively, this is something that usually it's coming back to you. And I always was like, how come, you know, how it's possible that it's really working positively and like discussion about, you know, the lucky people and and the people that are not so much lucky, but this serendipity is it's really very nice describing this one. So I found this model and definitely I want to figure out more about that because it's it's very interesting that sometimes you feel that, you know, it's pity I'm not so lucky like that person, but it's the, the lucky is not just like something that it's coming without yeah. any other reasons behind. So 
I want to learn more. Uh, I don't know if you had experience with this model or the theory. No, no. But as you're talking, I'm, I'm trying to recall, and I'm probably misquoting this. Is the serendipity is where preparation and chance combine something like that preparation because it's quite interesting it's whether and I know we speak quite a lot about mindsets and like you were just saying that that where you're able to see things that maybe other people don't see you know and how much of this comes back down to this sort of curiosity growth mindset proactive creativity for seeing or making things happen and then having the courage the tactful audacity mm-hmm. to have the courage to to make something happen to believe you can do it so how much of serendipity is caused by having a combination of these mindsets i think is are you going to make this the subject of your final project or is no, that no 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 i'm i'm not I'm not, I'm not extending, you know, (laughs) I I have already enough. No, but, but what, what I believe, especially nowadays, what I am observing is really that people are somehow, of course, we have a lot of new stress and a lot of unknown things, and it's really happening all around and coming from even the areas that you always believe that are something like secure positions, you know that during COVID that kids can go to school, all these things totally changed our foundation and our basics uh, that the people are under the highest stress and so on. So, and what I'm observing is that the people are saying, yeah, but he's lucky. And that is lucky, you know, and I'm not lucky. And, And then you are just thinking, okay, but how it's possible that somebody is more lucky than the other ones. And, and so I was just like curious about that because actually I am definitely feeling myself as a lucky person that I'm always having in the right moment, meeting the right people and showing me the new opportunities and giving me the chance that in a few months, years, you just can really judge or can really name it as the very important and very positive. So therefore I was looking, you know, how come that it's happening like that. But it's very much also very much definitely connected to all what you said about the mindset, about the ability or a readiness of people to challenge themselves and to, let's say, maintain uh, their setup. Because if if you are just like keeping like it is, usually there is no progress. So lessons learned, Mike. What what for you were some of the highs and the, well, you know, the great lessons you think you learned that you got and also what for you were some of the highs, some of the lows, or what would have been some of the most fun deals you've worked on and perhaps how, what made it fun? Well, most of them have been fun, actually, you, because <laughs> if, you, if you're going to be with people for so long, you have to make it fun. It's, it's absolutely uh, imperative that people smile yeah. every day. A lot of hard work. Um, I guess um, the most disappointing deal that we, that we did was uh, a big a big um, European, I'll, I'll make it non-specific, yes. bank in the early days where we yeah. knew exa- exactly what we needed to do to win um, and the, the board wouldn't give us the leverage to do it on sign-off. Um, Is this the board, you meaning uh, HP at the time? The, we're, we're talking HP here, yeah. So oh, the I HP. see. So it was HP's decision not to go ahead. 
it was HP's decision to really come out come out the deal uh, and not offer uh, the customer okay. exactly what we could what have offered. Okay. Yeah. So um, that that biggest disappointment. Lessons learned. Probably wouldn't have asked the board for permission next time. Okay. <laughs> Um, I presume you had risk committees, didn't you? I mean, we, we had you have to go through in order to get these deals through. But you, you, you do. But um, there's the, the thing is, when you're doing deals, that the shape of a deal after a negotiation is nothing like the shape of a deal before you go into the negotiation. Well, so that's that's probably a bit of an, an extreme. It changes significantly from the start of a negotiation to the end of a negotiation. Right. Typically, when you're running big uh, responses to complex documents, procurement and, and a few technical people, they'll put a, an RFP together. Yeah. And it's and it's a it, a lot of it's very generic. There's a lot of information missing and it's it's big. And the idea when you get an RFP is um, that they're not selecting people. They're deselecting people when you get an RFP. So it's not okay. a, it, it's not a. It's a deselection process at the beginning. And then you go into the next phase, which is BAFO, and you're still bidding based on uh, a, a basic requirement that they've put together in RFP. So you then put BAFO, and then you're into selection of maybe two, two from three or two from four. And then you okay. take two into negotiation. And when you get into negotiation, that's when all the specifics start to come onto the table, and actually you can shape the deal. So it's a little bit like uh, when you get a builder and he gives you a quote and um, uh, then you start asking for extras afterwards. Okay. okay. It's not quite as, you know, you have to be very specific and help the customer understand uh, where the deviation is from the original request. Uh, and it's important to get that, that right in, yeah. in, in a very collaborative way with the customer. But um, in the last part of the deal, everything changes. And, and a lesson learned, by the way, is in that process, things are changing for a reason. And the reason things change is because the competition that you're bidding against is coming up with some really good ideas. Okay. okay? So it changes the, 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 the ground that you're on constantly. So one of the lessons learned is, you need to be the one that's in competition that's coming up with all the good ideas that wow. then backfoots your competition. And, okay. and so when you get to the, 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 the winning post, if you like, yeah. you've got lots of these ideas left in your, in your back pocket in case okay. the, uh, the competition try and backfoot you. Okay. So, you know, so that's a, you know, quite a key, key yeah, lesson yeah. learned. Yeah. But I guess the, uh, sort of lessons from from that particular one was we should have really uh, in the qualification phase set the expectation of what we needed to do in order to win in order that our executive committee uh, bought into the situation okay okay is that is that more an internal pitch you're, you're yeah, yeah. Ma okay. managing managing the, your internal stakeholders is as important as managing your customer stakeholders, yeah, okay. um, especially on big deals uh, or anything that 
deviates in any way from standard and operating procedure within an organization. Um, you know, you really have to get all the key people lined up and on board within your own organization. Absolutely yeah. essential. Uh, and lesson learned from that was, um, I mean, I whimsically said probably wouldn't have told them, but um, I probably would have told them when I was certain of the, of the shape of the deal rather than telling yeah. them sort of it towards the end of it, uh, towards the middle of it. Um, and lesson learned really stringently managing the stakeholder communication all the way through the deal to make sure there's no surprises right. for them. Yeah. So critical on, on that that one so that was the deal that we won that we lost the customer wanted us but we but we decided not to go ahead in fact it's the only it's the only deal that i've earned a bonus on that i didn't actually sign so you know oh wow you still got the company the company recognized their position and they gave us a they gave us a bonus it was a token but it was a gesture so well that's I mean, that's interesting because that speaks a lot to the values of Hewlett-Packard because not every company would do that, as you no. probably found out in your career. Yes, yeah, I'm certainly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>